It's been a long time since we had a major transition in this book. Early on, it felt like we were constantly hitting those Toledoth markers. Do you remember those? These are the generations of that helps structure the book. It's been a while since we've seen one. The last one was the generations of Terah, who was Abraham's father. And we're still in that because we're still talking about his son, Abraham. But tonight, we're going to finally see the torch begin to pass from one generation to the next. The last story we saw was the binding of Isaac. When Abraham faithfully went up on that mountain and was going to sacrifice his son, of course, the Lord stopped him. And that was the climax of Abraham's life, at least for the purpose of the Bible. And the last thing we're really going to see him do, the last major action that Abraham will take, is when he's going to send his servant to find a bride for Isaac. So we've been waiting for Isaac, been talking a lot about Isaac is coming. Finally, he was born. Now he's here and he's going to be married today. So you can see now we're going to begin to leave Abraham behind. And we're actually, unfortunately, going to lose Sarah this week. We're going to see the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And that's a, a critical moment, but it's a blessed one because the whole time she, was, she couldn't believe that she was going to live long enough to see the fulfillment of God's promise. And not only did she do that, but we're going to see she lived well past that. Abraham and Isaac... We're going through a change of the seasons, you could say. The season was shifting to now Isaac is not just the son, but he's going to become the husband. And in the next chapter, he's going to become the father. Abraham is going to begin to pass from the scene and look towards glory, you might say. And it's a reminder in this story that God is faithful even across generational divides. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, The Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Now what's important about that, generations consist of people being born, living, and dying. For the Lord to be faithful across generations means that God does not pass away like we do. The Lord was the first character we saw in the Bible. He's going to be there all the way through. So, that's one more reason not to look to people, but it's another good reason to be encouraged because God is with us, even when things begin to change. And this is how we're going to evaluate this story from an application standpoint tonight. Transitions, changes in life, they're inevitable, aren't they? And they come in different ways. Sometimes you're desperate for a change, you know, you want it to change. And you're like, God, how long do we have to do this? Sometimes you're dreading the change. You know it's coming, and you're like, Lord, please, not yet. Just a little bit longer like this before it changes. And sometimes they just take you by surprise. You weren't looking for it. You were arrested <laughs> by the change. And in this story, we watch how Abraham, at the height of his maturity, you could say, he's finally going to do everything right in this story, how he handles a change that comes into his life, the changing of the guard, you could say. And the Lord himself is not even going to speak in this story. But it's like the book of Esther. God never says anything in the book of Esther, but it's so obvious that God is working and that God is there. And sometimes that's what life is like. You feel like God hasn't said anything, but then you look back and you're like, how could I think that God wasn't there? He was doing stuff the whole time. He's ever present with us. And it ought to be ruling over every time we have a change or a transition that we go through. We talk about seasons of life, and sometimes that transition is painful. Whether that's a physical change, like Abraham was experiencing, where his wife died, his son was getting married, those things can rock your world, man. They really can. Sometimes it's a spiritual change, where God comes to you and says, you've been dealing with that sin long enough. It's time to put it away. It's time to move forward. So, as we go through this today, you might feel like you need to make a change. Or sometimes you're like, I feel one coming on and it's time to get ready. Or maybe you've been thrust into the deep end and you're trying to figure out how to manage it. Well, the Abraham's example and the example of his servant and of Rebecca is something we all can aspire to. So it's a long passage, but we're going to go pretty briskly. Let's start in chapter 22 and we'll finish it up with this short little genealogy starting at verse 20. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn. Buzz, his brother. Never knew Buzz was a Bible name. How about that? Kemuel, the father of Aram. Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, 
Yidlaf and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. You might want to underline that. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Ma'aka. So this is picking up where we left off. After these things, as I've said, the book of Genesis very frequently doesn't give you a specific time, like six months later or two years later. It just says, after these things. Abraham receives news of the birth of some nieces and nephews that he had which seems like an odd thing to throw in there until you get to chapter 24 and you realize that this is very relevant, actually. You might remember, but back in chapter 11, when we saw the genealogy of Abraham, verse 26, Abraham had a brother named Nahor. And we haven't seen him because Abraham, remember, left his family and came to the promised land. Now we find that he had eight legitimate children by his wife and four others by his concubine. It's interesting how... Those who are related to Abraham are having children in twelves, that Ishmael had twelve sons, and now Nahor is having twelve, and of course the twelve tribes of Israel as well. And some of these names are going to come back. I'll just mention them to you quickly. In the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Job lived in the land of Uz. So he would have lived in the land that was settled by this son of Nahor here, the nephew of Abraham. And it says that Kemuel was the father of Aram. You maybe have heard of the Aramaic language before. That comes from this guy, Aram, who settled the area that is largely today Syria. He built the cities of Aleppo and Damascus. So that's why when it's giving a genealogy and it only gives one extra name, it's usually because that person was rather significant, like Rebekah, who of course was mentioned. And that's the most important thing, that Bethuel... The youngest of these eight children, God has a thing for the youngest child, doesn't he? We're just going to pass by that, but it is interesting. He had a daughter named Rebecca, whom we're going to meet today. And I think we see through this that while Abraham is off having all of his adventures, things are still moving forward. And that's kind of what life is like, isn't it? You can have your nose to the grindstone and focusing on your thing and what you're doing, and that's fine. Abraham wasn't doing anything wrong, but things are always changing and moving, and then they feel like they happened all of a sudden. But in reality, nothing's really that stable except for the Lord himself. So let's pick it up now in chapter 23. And we're going to read this whole chapter, because this is a long section to get across what is a rather short point, but it is important. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me that Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites." Okay, that's sort of a repetitive story, isn't it? 
but it is significant. We come to the death of Sarah. She's 127 years old. She was 90 when Isaac was born, so she lived to not only have her son, but to watch him grow up. He's 37 years old now. It's also important to note, she is the only woman in the Bible whose age is given at the time of her death. The Bible holds Sarah in very high regard, and so should we. Now, you can imagine how devastated Abraham was, can't you? Think of everything that he'd been through together with his wife. Not only the good times, but also the bad times, and the two times that she got stolen by foreign kings and added to their harem, and the, all the doubt that they went through, and then, and then having a child together in their old age, and watching him grow, and growing blessed and rich together, and getting to know God better together, and now he's lost her, his oldest friend and his companion. And we come to this story where he's trying to find a place to bury her. And at first it seems kind of trivial. Why are we wasting an entire chapter on a business negotiation to buy a cave? But this is important, and I think you, you'll understand when I say it to you. This chapter is the first time Abraham or any of his descendants took possession of a piece of the promised land. For the first time. Abraham owns a piece of Canaan. Up till now, he's been pitching tents. He's been building altars. He's been moving around. Now, he finally owns a piece of land, the cave of Machpelah near Hebron, which is significant. And you can almost see how this story would have been used as a legal document in a way. It's like proof of ownership. It's like, no, 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 this is ours. And you can see how kind they're trying to be to Abraham and say, no, you, you take it. We love you. you can, we're not going to charge you anything for it. But you can see Abraham is like, listen, you guys are great, but your children might not be, or your great-grandchildren might not be. And they might say, well, you don't have a contract. You might have had a handshake, but I don't recognize that. So he goes through all the formalities and buys the land. And, and this is significant. This is the first definitive purchase of the land of Canaan. It's just a little piece, just a cave, just a tomb, but it's the first one. It anchors the children of Abraham to the promised land. Now, this is at Kiriath Arba, which would become Hebron. And we've got a map here if you want to take a look at this. Last time we saw Abraham, he was living in the land of the Philistines, but it's been 37 years. So he's moved from here back to near Mamre, where he lived most of his life. And Kiriath Arba and Hebron are all in that same area. And the cave was at a place called Machpelah. This is Hittite territory. And he buys it for 400 shekels of silver. And this would be the site not only of Sarah's burial, but also Abraham would be buried here. Isaac and Rebekah will be buried here. Jacob and Leah will be buried here, not Rachel. Very interesting. And when they come out of Egypt in the Exodus, they're going to bring the bones of Joseph with them and bury them in the cave at Machpelah. Very important. Today, there is a mosque built over that site. Because as we talked about last time, the Muslims venerate Abraham as well. It's called the Cave of the Patriarchs. So I am not an archaeologist, so I couldn't tell you if that's the exact spot, but there it is. It's still honored and venerated to this day, which I think is significant. Abraham lost his wife. That's called upheaval. That's called disruption. And that comes to every life. Have you noticed? I don't think anybody that lived through the last year is going to be able to say they don't know what it's like to go through upheaval when you don't know what's going to happen next. Loved ones die. Jobs end. Nations fail. Sometimes you've got a bad habit that you've ignored, and then it comes to a head and gets you in trouble. You've got sins or things in your past that you've buried and you never dealt with, and then they catch up with you. Sometimes you just get to a place where you say, I've had enough. Nothing external happens, but you and your spirit just say, I can't keep living this way. Or sometimes God knocks on the door and says, I've had enough of you living this way. I'm tired of seeing you walk around with that burden on your back. Let me take it off your back. Seasons move on. Things die. Maybe something has died in your life. Maybe there's something that needs to die in your life. That's the moment when the generation passes on. And we see Abraham grieving, mourning, but he's going to move forward in this next chapter. And we have a temptation that comes against us that when things go upside down in our lives, and there's upheaval or disruption, that we just want to camp out there. We let it totally shipwreck our life, where I can't move forward. I can never get over that. I've known people that have lost fathers or lost loved ones or even had bad relationship breakups, and 
They allow that to define them for the rest of their life. And they never get over it. And it breaks them. But we've got to learn to move on. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 7. The city is under siege. The people are starting to buy donkey heads to eat. And they're even starting to turn to cannibalism at this point. And there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, there's famine in the city and we'll die there. And if we sit here, we'll die also. So let's go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we'll live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. It's like, we're only going to die. We're going to die option one, option two, maybe option three. So let's try option three. But I love that phrase. Why do we sit here until we die? And some of us can do that. We sit in the mess that has been made of our lives, whether we made it or somebody else, rather than getting up and moving forward. You can't go back. Abraham was not going to get Sarah back. No matter how long he sat and grieved and wept over her, he was not getting her back. Sometimes things come to your life that you're not getting back. You're not getting that opportunity back. You blew it or somebody betrayed you. You're not going to have that person in your life anymore. Maybe you're injured and you can't do the things you used to do. Some things happen that we can't go backwards. They're dead, so to speak. But you can't stay still or you'll stagnate. It's going to catch up with you anyway. Moving forward is dangerous. Moving forward in life, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, is difficult. It's a choice. Remember how often the children of Israel wanted to go back to the land of Egypt? And it's so crazy. Why would you want to go back? You were slaves in Egypt. And they go, yeah, but we knew where our food was going to come from. And out here in the desert, we're not sure. We're thirsty. We're hungry. And sometimes life is like that, where you've been liberated from something, but right in front of you is this vast open wilderness. And you're like, uh, I think I might just stay. But you can't do that. And God is with you. That's the good news, that God's going to help you go forward. Abraham's life began with an upheaval, right? Get up, leave your family, and go to a land that I'll show you. Now he's come to it again. So how are they going to handle this? Let's move on now to chapter 24. Let's read verses 1 and 9. So the first thing we've learned, I'll just say it, is we've got to move forward. You can't stay still. So let's read verses 1 through 9. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I'll give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Okay. We find out in chapter 25 that when Isaac married Rebekah, he was 40 years old. So this is probably around three years since the death of Sarah now. And Abraham would have been 40 years old, because if Isaac is 40 and Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born, old and well advanced in years indeed. And he says, we're going to find a bride for Isaac. And he calls his servant. We can't know for sure because it doesn't say but remember back in chapter 15, he said, the heir to my house is Eliezer of Damascus, probably the same guy, or somebody who had a similar role, who oversaw the whole household for him. Must have trusted this guy, because he's going to go send him to pick out a bride for his son. He sends him back to his home country, and he makes him swear. Now, that phrase is a little awkward, but it's, it is significant when he says, put your hand under my thigh. That is euphemistic language for put your hand between my thighs. And the idea is, I trust you this much. I'm putting my life and my children into your hands. Not something we would do today, but it is important to know what the Bible means when it puts it that way. He says, you swear to me, you will not remove Isaac from the land, and you will not marry Isaac to a Canaanite woman. This is an important lesson 
and I could teach this a lot more than I'm going to. Later on, the Lord would tell the Israelites not to marry from the tribes in the, in the land. He said, they're going to take you away from the Lord, they're going to steal your heart, and you're going to start worshiping idols, which is exactly what happened. And in the New Testament, Paul tells us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Same thing, they're going to take your heart away from the Lord. Look at the lengths Abraham is willing to go to in order to make sure his son, in his choice of a bride, remains faithful to the Lord first. It's an important lesson. He said, you're not going to have him marry a Philistine or a Hittite. You're going to go back and you're going to find someone from our own family. Abraham acknowledges God's call on his life and his sons too. He's like, no, we're not leaving. God sent us here. I spent my whole life getting us here. And he's proceeding past the upheaval in his life in full submission to the Lord. This is the thing we're looking at now. He refused to let the disruption of Sarah's death drive him away from God to jeopardize the line of promise in the same way. You've got to move forward. Great. But you've got to move forward with God or not at all. That's important. Abraham says, okay, we've all grieved. It's time to move forward. But he says, we are going to do it exactly the way that God told us to do it. We're not changing. We're not coming up with new ideas. We're not mad at him for what happened. We're in submission to him. Reminds me of in Exodus 33. This was after the golden calf episode. And God said, fine, go to the promised land. I'll send one of my angels to lead you. But Moses said to the Lord in Exodus 33:15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. He's like, I'm perfectly content to stay here on Mount Sinai forever if you're not going to come with us. He says, you brought us out of Egypt. You sent us out into the wilderness. I've got to try to wrangle these people. You better come. I'll give you an angel. Now, I don't want an angel. I want you. That's significant for us. It's similar to what Abraham is doing in principle. When a change happens, tragedy, blessing even, or a spiritual need in your life, when you're moving into a new season, you've got to determine you're going to move forward with the Lord, not without the Lord. You're going to say, God, I'm ready to go, but I'm not going until you say go. You are the green light in my life, Lord. If you decide to move forward without God, without his presence, without his power, you will make your situation worse. Didn't Abraham do that a few times? When Abraham and Sarah said, God's taken too long, so we'll have a child with Hagar. And that was the biggest mistake of Abraham's life. But if you determine that the word of God is going to be my guide, we're going to do things by the book with a capital B. That the Holy Spirit is going to give us the power. We're not going to try and drum up the power on our own. We're going to let God lead us. That God's plan will overrule my plan, then you're ready to go forward. Jesus told the disciples after he rose from the dead, Luke 24, 49, he said, you're going to be my witnesses all around the world. We go, great. He goes, but first, tarry in Jerusalem for a while until you are endued with power from the Holy Spirit. He says, you're going to go, but don't you go without me. Don't you go until you have my power. You've got to make this determination in your heart. How do you do this? You've got to start on your knees. There's something significant about having a moment where you get on your knees and you say, God, I am in submission to you. I've got to move past this. I've made some mistakes. Things were done to me. I'm ready to move forward. There's just a new season coming in life. I'm going to go, but you've got to come with me. You've got to lead me. Promise, Lord, I'm not going to do anything apart from your will and your plan. The good news is that God will, will meet you there. He says, right on. I've got some good plans. Ephesians 2, verse 10, right? The Lord has works prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So you say, God, I don't want to step outside of that. I want to walk right in it because I believe your plans are better than mine. And that can be a profound experience, but it might not be. <laughs> you ever settle down and you're like, all right, Lord, I've got, a, I've got a something to say. And you're like, this is going to be the biggest, deepest moment of my life. And it's going to rock my, and just kind of falls flat. Like, well, that, that, uh. There were no earthquakes, you know, there was no fire from heaven there. But you know what? The Lord doesn't worry about that. The Lord's like, I heard you. I heard you, and I'm with you. Determine, I'm not going to spend a dollar. I'm not going to travel a mile. I'm not going to change one thing until God says to do so. That's what Abraham did. He said, I want you to go find a bride for my son. But you, if you can't do it God's way, I'd prefer you come home with nothing or with no one in this case. Let's read verses 10 through 14. 
Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink and I'll water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. All right. So the servant, probably Eliezer, travels to, it says, Mesopotamia. Literally in Hebrew, you might have it in your Bible, this is Aram Naharaim. So you can hear some of the names in there. Aram was the son of one of the, uh, one of the sons of Nahor. And Naharaim is related to the name Nahor. And the Aim ending is what's called a dual ending in Hebrew. So we have singular and plural. They also have what's called dual. So this is referring to the two rivers that this place sat between. So we have our map here. We can take another look at this other map that this is far up north, getting up almost to modern-day Turkey. And Aram Naharaim was this area in between the two rivers there in what we call Mesopotamia now. And he comes there with a caravan of 10 camels. I don't think he came by himself. You know, he, this is a big deal. They've got a lot of gifts. They've got 10 camels. He's probably got security, I would imagine. And he stops at the well. A lot of significant scenes at wells in Genesis, isn't there? And the servant prays. He's asking the Spirit of God to help him in his quest. He says, Lord, I've got to find a bride for Isaac. And he says, God, this is what I'm asking for. Let her be the one that says, I'll give you water and I'll give your camels water too. Giving one person a drink is one thing. Giving ten camels water is a little bit more work, if you understand. And I, I will say, it's not always advisable to ask God for a sign. Jesus would rebuke the Pharisees for that sometimes. A lot of times we're asking for signs because we know what God wants and we don't like what God wants. So we think we'll roll the dice and see if we get a three or something like that. But this, this scenario, it's okay. And this step in the progression we're going through here is similar to the first, but it is different. We're moving forward. We've determined we're going to do things God's way. Then... We are free to seek God's help in moving forward. And we say, what's the difference? I'll tell you. You say, God, I'm going to do things your way, and Lord, would you please help me? If you skip that first step and you just write to, Lord, help me, all you're doing is you're getting obsessed with God's blessings, and you're treating God like, I don't know, like he's a Sam's Club or a Costco, and he's just supposed to supply things for you. Now, God loves to supply things for his people. He loves to give blessings. But the Lord is the Lord. We use that term Lord. It means master. It means king. It means sovereign. So we don't come to God and say, all right, God, I need some stuff. Make it happen. The Lord says, no, I'm not giving you anything. You start by saying, God, we're going to do things your way. And if I'm going to do them your way, I'm going to need some help. That's the kind of prayer that God will answer. He's not Santa Claus. Or if you're a nice boy, he'll give you some wonderful presents. You've got to come in humility. And you're not just asking for luck. It's kind of what prayer feels like sometimes. Isn't that, isn't that awful? That it's like we, we, you either rub the lucky rabbit's foot or you, know, you knock on wood or you hang a horseshoe on the door and you just say, Lord, please help me today. It's good luck. The Lord wants to be the leader of your life. You're saying, God, I want to be on your team. And God says, if you join my team, I'm going to help you. It's important to get those things in the right order. Not just showing up demanding things of God. But when you are the Lord's servant and his child, there is an incredible permission for you to come and start asking for the Lord's help. Look how the, the apostles prayed in Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. This is when they had been persecuted and beaten for the first time. Everything had been going great. Church is growing. Thousands of people getting saved. Miracles. Pow, they're thrown in prison and they're beaten with rods. So they come to the prayer meeting and they say, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak with all boldness. 
They start by saying, God, we're going to keep speaking, but we need boldness. Can you give us that? While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Is it appropriate to pray for healing and signs and wonders? You bet it is. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's the kind of prayer that God honors. It says, Lord, we've got a problem. We're going to keep doing it your way. We could sure use some help. And that's when God sends down a heavenly airstrike on your behalf. That's the kind of prayer God honors. Not just like, Lord, I made a mess. Would you please fix it? And God loves to fix messes, but it's a submissive attitude that we need. We're saying, God, I, I'm on your team. I'm submissive to you. Wherever you want to go, I'll follow. And that's when the Lord says, all right, you want some help? So when you've got those changes in your life, you're changing jobs, or you're looking for a bride, you're moving on to a new depth of maturity, and you know that God's got somewhere new he's calling you. You don't start out by saying, all right, Lord, chop, chop, bring it on. Let's see. You say, Lord, okay, I'm going to do it your way. And then you are free to seek his help. Don't just barge ahead. Say, keep up, God. No way. You are a follower of Jesus Christ, aren't you? This servant knew he was in God's will, yet he still stopped to pray. That's significant, isn't it? He still stopped to pray and to seek God's assistance. I think we can learn from that. So let's read verse 15 and see what happened. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. You might want to circle her name. It's the first time we see her in the book. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. That's the first thing, right? When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Ten camels that just made a long journey across the desert. Said, I'll keep the water coming until they're not thirsty anymore. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Mom, we got company coming. So he's praying, and it says, As he prayed, Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, comes out with her water jar. So to be clear, this is Isaac's cousin. This is Abraham's niece. Now the name here is Rebekah. This is how we anglicize it. But in Hebrew, her name would have been Rivka. Kind of interesting. We just kind of added an extra syllable because we felt like it. But Rivka was her name. And I like this. Her name meant ensnarer. Now, that sounds like a bad name, but you, you ever, they're, they're, one of my favorite songs from when I was growing up is a beautiful love song by Dashboard Confessional, and the lyrics go, you have stolen my heart. Now, if you didn't know English very well, and you're, you've stolen my heart, we think, that's awful. <laughs> you stole, it's like, no, 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 it's a beautiful thing. You've stolen my heart, right? You've captured me. You've ensnared me with your love. The idea of this name is she's so pretty that you take one look at her and you're trapped, man. She's that beautiful. She's that wonderful. So this is Rivka. This is Rebecca. And of course, she's a godly woman. So she's not just beautiful on the outside. She's beautiful on the inside, too. And she offers to give water not just to Eliezer, but to his ten camels, which is exactly what he'd asked the Lord for. He didn't have to prompt her. It was her idea. And when he realizes that God has fulfilled his request, he doesn't tell her why he's there yet. He says, 
thank you so much. You know, because you were so nice, I'm going to give you a few things. And he gives her two golden bracelets and a golden nose ring. So nose rings are in the Bible. There you go. Do with that whatever you want. And he says, hey, we're new in town. Do you have a place where we can stay? And he finds out, not only is this some very kind, very beautiful woman, this is Nahor's daughter. This is Abraham's relative, the, the one that he was looking for. And he gives this prayer in verse 27. It's so remarkable. I love it. I'm going to read it again. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. God doesn't say a word in this story. He doesn't do any miracle, if you want to call it that. But God was involved and supervising this whole process. He's praying, Lord, send a woman. I know it's about that time. The women are going to come out. And if there's one that offers me a drink and then is willing to, to water the camels, then, then Lord, I'll, I'll start looking there. And it says, while he's praying, here comes Rebecca. Do you know what that means? Before he started to pray, God had already nudged Rebecca out the door and said, go out. You're going you're to get water a little early today. God was already setting it up before he got on his knees to begin to pray. God knew what was going on. There's a story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, and I love this. It's a very different story, but it's when Jehoshaphat finds this army that is coming against the land of, of Judah, and they're terrified. There's no hope, no chance. They take the demands that the army sent them, right, you know, surrender or else, and they lay it out in the temple, and he says in verse 12, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I don't know if it rhymes in Hebrew, but it rhymes in English, and it makes it just that much better. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You ever feel that way? God, I don't know what to do. I've been counseling people before, and they say, here's the problem. I go, well, I don't know what to do. But you know who does? The Lord does. And we always start by looking to Jesus in those situations. Jehoshaphat believed God's promises, and God gives him a message through one of the prophets. You're going to win this battle, and you're not going to have to fight. So Jehoshaphat says, well, in that case, and they send the priests blowing the trumpets out in front of the army. They said, instead of the soldiers out front, the skirmishers and the snipers, we're, we're going to put the band out front. And we'll follow behind them singing, the Lord's mercy endures forever. You've got to know there was at least one of those priests that was like, you've got to be kidding me. I believe God too, but I mean, this sort of seems like tempting fate, doesn't it? But by the time they get there, the armies that had been allied against them had fought one another. And it says all they had to do was go down and collect all the spoil. So what was a terrible situation turned into a payday. It was tax return day for the land of Judah. The battle was already won. They were terrified and didn't know what was going to happen. And they're like, Lord, help us. What's going to happen? And God's like, I've already won the battle. Just go. Go claim your victory because I've already won the battle. Same thing here. God I don't know what to do. You can imagine this fervent prayer at the well, and God's got to just be chuckling. She's, like, She's on her way, man. I've been setting this up for a long time. When you move forward in life from upheaval, from disruption, you're being obedient, you're being submissive, you're seeking God's help, you're going to find that God is already there preparing the answer to your prayers. Think about that. Right now, God is doing things for you that you don't even realize you need yet. God is setting up situations. He is bringing people into play that you don't even know. You wouldn't even care if you knew. But in a few years, in a few months, you're going to find out that's exactly what was needed. It's called trusting the sovereignty of God. Because we look at the individual moves and say, oh, no, God, what's going on? The Lord's like, I'm not just doing this for you. I'm doing this for everybody. Calm down. It's going to be okay. It's going to work out. You ever have that happen where God was clearly leading you and you were terrified to step out, and then you get there and it's just all set up? The battle's won. All you've got to do is get out there and collect the spoil. That's how we felt it was moving down here to Alabama, plant the church a couple years ago. Like, well, we're going to go. And we were all revved up to do something defiantly faithful. And we get here, and God's just set it up. It's like, okay, well. Uh, everyone's like, so how long did you look? It's like, well, not very long. God just had it ready to go. And I've had so many of you all come to me and say, you got here at exactly the right time. It was exactly what I needed. And I would never have found you if you hadn't have done this at that time. And God knows. That's why we walk in submission and obedience, because then you open that up for yourself. But when you're in there trying to mess with it, you're going to mess it up. 
God sets things up before you even notice them. Isaiah 64, 5 says he meets those who joyfully work righteousness. When you're working righteousness, you're going to meet God along the way. And you're going to see what he's done for you. So you don't know what's coming next. But if you are moving in a Godward direction, you can worry less about where you're going to end up because he's working it out for you. And I'd say there are a few more wonderful moments in life than when you get to realize the promises that God has made, where God's been whispering to you and you kind of say, okay, maybe we'll see. And then you get there and you're like, God was setting all this up and I had no idea. Even when you can't see it, God is at work. So we got a long stretch here, but let's read it. Verse 29 down to verse 49. This is another sentence worth underlining because he's going to come back later. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. If you know a little bit about Laban, you understand why that's significant. And he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister. Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master has made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And you might say, didn't we just read all that? Yes, we did. And you can see the difference in style between the way that the Hebrews wrote then and the way that we write today. I remember when I was in school and writing class, they would tell you, rule number one is omit needless words. If you've already said it, don't need to put it in there. That's very English. But in these cultures, you repeat things when they're important. You repeat them when you want them to be heard again because they're significant. So back in verse 29 in there, we saw Laban. We're going to see a lot of Laban later. But for now, we get our first glimpse into his character. His sister comes back from the well, and she's got some new gold jewelry she didn't have before. Where did you get that? There's a guy out at the well, and he's got ten camels loaded up with, with precious gifts and gold, and Laban was gone. <laughs> he said, hey, buddy, come on into the house. What are you doing out here? Oh, please sit down. We got food for you. And you know later on Laban is going to spend a lot of time ripping off Jacob. And we already can see that in his character now. Servants brought into the house. They make dinner, but he says, I'm not touching a bite until I tell the whole story. And what is so instructive is how filled with God the servant's story is. Do You see, he's not just relating information. He's got God at every point of the story. God sent Abraham out. God gave Abraham a child. God sent me here. God brought Rebekah to me. 
So he's not just relating information. He is, as we would say, testifying to the goodness of God. This is a critical step. So we've, we've been leading up to the reception of the promise. When you receive what God's doing for you, when the job situation finally shakes out, when provision finally comes in, when the relationship heals, when God heals your body, when you overcome that sin, you've got to get up and testify. Psalm 107, 1 and 2, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble. And the question is, have you said so? Have you stood up among the people of God and say, I give thanks to the Lord for what He's done because of what He did for me? Have you told other people of the goodness of God to you? Those moments when you were shaken in your boots and didn't know what was going to happen, and the Lord led you to the victory when you weren't even looking for it? Have you at least told your brothers and sisters in the church? I found especially, when it comes to sin and the miraculous, for some reason, we're afraid to tell those stories because we're afraid people are going to make fun of us. You think, you would think that when the Lord does something miraculous in your life, and I'm talking seriously, He heals you, He gives you some miraculous moment, and, and the Lord sets something up, that all you'd want to do is talk about it. But immediately Satan comes in and wants to quiet the message. And here's the one we always hear. This is the excuse I've heard a thousand times. Well, that was something between God and me. And this is just to be between him and us. And I'll know this and no one else. That, when did God ever say that? God said, get out and tell folks. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We need those stories because God healed you. But what about the person sitting in the back row that is doubting God's healing and God's goodness? And you stand up and you say, God healed me. And they say, okay, maybe God can heal me too. God provided for me. Maybe he can provide for me too. And when you fail to glorify God, you can start to attribute his work to coincidence or to your own cleverness. And everybody looks at your life and say, wow, you're so great, even though you know it had nothing to do with you. Remember in Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar is strutting around his palace and says, look at all this stuff I built. And God struck him with madness, and he spent seven years eating grass on the back 40 like a cow. God's like, who gave it to you? I could take it away from you, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar stood up, and he says, okay, I just spent seven years as a cow. Everybody's going to give glory to God, and if you don't, I'm going to rip out the central beam of your house and impale you on it. That was how Nebuchadnezzar handled things. But it's, it's the truth. You've got to stand up and give your story, Christian. You've got to testify. In your home fellowships, during the prayer meetings, we'll give chances up here. We've done it before for someone to stand up and say, this is what God did for me. Testify boldly. Eliezer didn't know these people. <laughs> he had never met them before. But he's standing up and he's talking about God and he's talking about miracles. He's talking about being led by the Lord. Don't be afraid. Stand up and speak. Well, verse 50 down to verse, the first part of verse 54. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. We'll pause halfway through that verse. So we knew that this was going to happen because God was in it. But her father says, yes, they give a banquet that night. This is worshipful celebration, not just because Isaac is going to have a bride, but because the line of promise through whom the Messiah is going to come is secure because Rebekah is going to marry Isaac. This is the next step that comes. You've testified what God has done. It's time to celebrate. <laughs> You've got to have a worshipful celebration. And I will say, at least in most of the folks I've been around growing up, we are not as good at this as we should be. We are very good at lamenting and wailing and saying, God's going to deliver me, I know. But then as soon as he does, we're like, oh, okay, great. Thanks, God. Luke 15, 7 says, I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. All I want to focus on that, that there is joy in heaven. There is celebration in heaven. When God does something, heaven rejoices. Read through Revelation. They, they pause through all the judgments to give praise to the Lord and to write new songs. That's only appropriate, right? Every time God delivered Israel, 
He says, I'm going to give you all a new holiday for that. You're going to have another feast. You're going to be happy. You're going to be celebrate. And he says, if you get to the feast days and you know somebody who's so poor they, they can't afford the good meat and the good wine, you give it to them so they could have a great party. So why are we reluctant and why do we think it's more spiritual to be somber than to be celebratory in the Lord's presence? I don't know why. We tend to be so reserved. We'll go to the football game and we'll holler and we'll scream and we'll throw things and we'll paint our face. We'll go to the party and we'll dance and we'll laugh and we'll make jokes. Then we come to church and you put your sad face on or your serious face on. Aren't we supposed to be sober-minded? Yes, but you're not supposed to be miserable in God's presence. Well, I'm not. Well, then why do you look like that? My dad used to say, are you okay? I'm like, no. He says, you look angry. I said, I'm not angry. He says, well, tell your face. <laughs> you really tell me how I got to look? It's like, yeah, because you're, you're communicating to people what you really think. And you might say that you're happy. He said, well, it just seems a little unacceptable to do that in God's presence. Read through the Psalms again, man. Make a joyful shout to the Lord. Dance before his presence. Clap your hands. He says, play loudly with the drums and stringed instruments. Shouldn't the opposite of what we tend to experience be true? And I realize some of that's cultural. You go to other cultures around the world, and they don't care. They'll scream. They'll holler. They'll celebrate the Lord. But well, it's, we, we, we need to be dignified. You know what David told his wife when she accused him of being undignified? The king of Israel got down into what was essentially his undergarment and was leaping and dancing. Can you imagine President Trump or President Biden taking off their suit and being in their undershirt, leaping and dancing in the streets? Yeah, you're all uncomfortable right now. <laughs> Every one of you is uncomfortable. Well, he gets home and Michael says, well, 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 look who it is. He says, how the king of Israel has disgraced himself before the maiden station. He goes, oh, I'm sure all the ladies love that, David. And he says, it was before the Lord. And in 2 Samuel 6, he said, I'll become even more undignified than that. You ain't seen nothing yet, Michael. I love God so much, I will be as undignified as needs be for his sake. So the threshold for what is undignified in God's presence is pretty high, isn't it? We as a church, and I'm talking Calvary Chapel Trustville on Old Springville Road, needs to learn to be more fervent and excitable about the things of God. Glum faces are a poor testimony to the Lord. And we don't want to be out of control, but that is hardly our problem right now. So let's not worry about that, okay? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Why did Paul say it twice? Because he knew we needed to hear it. Rejoice. We get really good at exploring the sad end of the emotional spectrum. You've got to go the other way, too. You've got to have just as much joy and celebration in your heart. You know what it might be? This isn't in my notes, so I won't spend long talking about this. I think sometimes we can let the people that are going through rough times twist the arm of the people that are full of joy in the church and say, well, if you rejoice, then you are somehow discounting the pain that I'm going through. First of all, that should not be the case. The Bible says, weep with those who weep. It also says, rejoice with those who rejoice. We do both. This guy says, all right, we're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate. But you're going to see, he almost gets caught in Laban's snare here. Second half of verse 54. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. So Eliezer's ready to go. And it's interesting because like, we had a deal last night. He said, all right, well, we're going to go. He said, no, 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 she needs to stay at least 10 more days. This is the kind of stuff that will get Jacob in trouble later. Uh, seven more years. No, just seven more years. And maybe seven more years, Jacob. 
Till finally Jacob gets so mad, he sneaks away in the middle of the night with all of Laban's grandkids. And then he says, well, no, we've got to leave right away. And they say, oh, well, well, I think that's up to her, don't you think? And she says, yeah, I'll go. Which is a reference to back to verse 8, remember? Abraham said, if she won't come, then you just come back. Because I don't want somebody to be dragged, kicking and screaming. When she says she's willing to go, so her nurse comes too. We'll find out in chapter 35, and the nurse's name is Deborah. We're not going to see much about her, but her name is in there. So obviously Rebecca, I'm sure, loved her dearly. Blessed by her family. When the enemy has lost in your life, when you have finally left behind the things that disrupted your life, you've died to yourself, you've received God's blessing, you're testifying, you're rejoicing, his final tactic is delay. You're standing on the finish line and he keeps you from stepping over it. You've come to the edge of the promised land and you send in the spies and you say, never mind, we're not going. That's the enemy's tactic. Luke 9 Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Abraham was tempted by delay. He didn't leave Haran until his father died. Lot was tempted by delay. Remember the angels had to grab him by the arm and drag him out of Sodom? Jacob would be tempted by delay. By Laban, actually. Moses would be tempted by delay. Every believer encounters this. Where you know the next thing God wants you to do, you've received it, it's been laid out, but we never step out and take it and walk into it and do what we know we ought to do. And what makes it so subtle is that we can convince ourselves that it's okay. We say, well, I have every intention of stepping out into this new season. I'm not never going to do it. I'm just going to do it tomorrow. And you put it off, not just till tomorrow, but till your deathbed. And you never receive what God has told you to do. And you keep on coming back to God for something fresh. And all he's got to say is, I want to give you something fresh. Here you go. And you say, God, I've already heard that. He goes, yeah, but you ain't done it yet. How many people have been in a wild worship service, heard God's voice for their life, laid out on the carpet in worship, only to get up and do nothing? Delay and put it off until it's almost too late. If God's opened the door for you, don't just talk about it. Walk through it. Start fasting if that's what he needs you to do. Start preaching if that's what he's called you to do. Start that new job or relationship. Delay will bury you if you let it. But Eliezer was too smart for that. He left right away. Rebecca knew it was time as well. And it might be time for you to find out what God has shown you. Sprinting to the end here, verse 62. Told you it was a long passage. Now Isaac had returned from Be'er Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. Maybe she said it more like, Who is that man? So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So he's coming from Be'er Lahai Roy, which means the well of God who sees me. This is Hagar's well. I'm not really sure what the significance of that is, but this is Hagar's well. Maybe he was visiting Ishmael. It does not say that, but we know that he lived in the Negev, and that's where Isaac is coming back from. Meditating in verse 63, we see he was a spiritual man. He's sitting there thinking about the Lord, praying to the Lord, and he looks up and he sees his future. That's why we pray. Rebecca finds out who he is. She veils herself. Jews at this time, they did not veil themselves completely like Muslims will do today with the burqas or things like that. This would have been for the wedding. The idea is let's get married now. And the two are wed. And it said Isaac loved her. So the line of promise has another mother to carry it on. It's a glorious thing when you finally experience the fullness of a new season that God's leading you into. You still feel the pain of the death you experienced, the disruption you faced, but you receive comfort from God because His grace washes over you in a whole new way. It's like growing up. Maybe you liked childhood, but you move on and you go to high school. Maybe you liked high school, but you move on and 
But maybe sometimes you go, oh, it'll be fun to go back for a while. But you really wouldn't want to go backwards, really, because you've moved on and you've grown and you can't go backwards. Or you can get stuck looking backwards, and that's not a good place to be. Paul said, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you're in the middle of it, this is why you keep going. If you haven't started yet, this is why you begin, because there's something good waiting for you. Such an important story. Genesis 24 is the longest single episode in the book of Genesis, because it's all about continuity. It's moving on from Abraham successfully to the next generation. Not a lot of great fathers in the Bible, unfortunately, but Abraham was one. At least with Isaac, he was. In your own life, there are going to be times when something dies or something needs to die. And the journey to the next season might be long and difficult, but it's got to be done. Are you going to let God destroy what is earthly in you and move on to what he's planned for you in the heavenly places? No stagnation for God's people. 2 Corinthians says we go from glory to glory. And in the middle, you might have some pain. You've got to wander through the desert to get to the promised land, but you've got to keep going. Get up and move, Christian, because God's got something good waiting for you on the other side.